Now let's turn our attention to the scriptures. God wants to speak to us from John chapter 12. John 12 is where we're at. We'll read the passage in its entirety in just a second. The message is going to be two parts. We're going to spend probably half of our time together in the scriptures right now reading John 12. I'll make a few comments as we read. And then I'm going to state the main point and wrap up with some conclusions, not just on John 12, but because John 12 is basically the halfway point of this gospel, we're going to reflect really on the first 12 chapters as a whole. As I said, John 12 brings us to the end of the first half of the gospel according to John. John was a very close friend, dearly loved follower of Jesus. He wrote this account just a few decades after he had lived with Jesus. He had heard Jesus teach. He had witnessed Jesus' miracles. He had seen him suffer. And he had talked with him, walked with him after Jesus rose from the dead. Throughout the first 11 chapters, 12 chapters that we're going to add chapter 12 to today, Throughout these first chapters, John has been teaching us who Jesus is, who he knew Jesus to be. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one through whom the universe came into existence. He is the creator become human. And John explains that Jesus has not only the power to create everything that exists, but he therefore has the right and the power to recreate everything that exists. He can fix everything that's broken. He can rid sinners of their guilt before God, reconcile them to God, and he can remove the curse of death that blankets this planet. He's not only the creator, he is the recreator. He has the power of life, the power of creation. And John teaches us that not only with his signs, but also with all of these interactions that Jesus has. He can recreate a proud religious man like Nicodemus. He loves Nicodemus. He can recreate, remake the Samaritan woman who's known and avoided by everyone for her immorality. Jesus loves being at weddings. And Jesus loves being at funerals. He enhances weddings and he can overturn funerals. John had heard Jesus claim to be the life, the creator, the one who gives life. And he knew from his experience of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection that Jesus had the power to give life by giving his own life and taking it up again. That is his love. That is his power. John heard Jesus constantly explain that the only right way for people to respond to Jesus is to believe him, to totally commit their lives to him. And if you want a little assignment, maybe this week, go back and review John 1 through 12 and just identify how many times the word believe is used. You'll be shocked. It'll come out, if you highlight it in your Bible, it'll come out with vibrancy. Like I said, today's passage is at the halfway point in John's Gospel. And in it, John explains that 
everyone should have worshipped Jesus, but most people dismissed him. What we read today takes place right at the end of Jesus' public ministry, about a week before he's crucified. It's six days, John 12, 1 says, before the Passover. And Jesus therefore came to Bethany. That's where Lazarus was, the one whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That was recorded in the previous chapter. That miracle had happened within the previous couple weeks. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served. Lazarus was one reclining with him at table. He was eating dinner at the same table as Jesus. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You might have a note in your Bible indicating how much 300 denarii is worth. It's equivalent in that day to 300 days of full-time employment or wages. In other words, this is a year's salary. So if you're a full-time employed individual, calculate how much you make by working one year full-time, and that's how much money she's, in Judas's eyes, wasting on Jesus. It is a massive amount. Verse 6, Judas was concerned about this lavishness, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And because he was the treasurer, he had the charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. John is summarizing the ministry of Jesus to this point, and he recounts this incident of Mary's worship because it's exemplary. John is using Mary to say, this was the right way to respond to the Son of Man. If you understand that the Creator become human is in front of you, no sacrifice is too lavish. John is essentially starting this summary chapter of Jesus' ministry saying, this lady got it. This is the right response. If you understand who Jesus is, the only right way to respond to him is to fall before him, love him, devote yourself to him, commit all you are and all you have to that man. She got it right. Verse 9, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. That's why the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, They're crying out the words of Psalm 118, which would have been used of Israel's king. They're claiming that Jesus is Israel's rightful king when they're singing, Hosanna, or save us, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it's written in Zechariah 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. He's sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, Jesus procured the donkey. And in getting the donkey, he knew he was doing something deliberate. He knew that he was acting out a five centuries old prophecy. Zechariah had written the 500s BC. And Jesus knows that he is acting out a prophecy that Zechariah had made that Israel's king, Zechariah says, he's going to rule from shore to shore. So Israel's king is going to be the world's king. He is going to be riding a donkey. Meaning, Jesus is not only claiming to be Israel's king and the king of kings, but he's claiming to be an unusual kind of king. He's entering the world not on a white horse prepared for battle, ready to do war. He's coming on a donkey. He's coming humble. He's coming as the one who can bring peace on earth. What a king. Yet John explains in verse 16 that his disciples didn't understand these things at first, why he rode a donkey. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, of course, what they're saying is, we need to get rid of this guy now. Don't let any more water go under the bridge. We need to deal decisively. But little did they know how prophetic their words would be. Within the next 30 years, there will be men and women, poor slaves and strong soldiers. There will be Africans and Asians, Samaritans and Syrians, Greeks and Romans who go after him. Now, speaking of the world... Verse 20, among those who had gone up to worship at the Passover festival were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and and they asked him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus here is explicitly saying, it's time for me to die, and my death is going to be what brings life to the world. And then he explains the only right response. I'm going to die. The only right response to that is, anyone who wants to follow me is going to have to die to their self-centeredness. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever, as it were, hates his life, speaking in very black and white terms, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
Jesus is saying you have to die to self. You have to take yourself off the throne of your heart. You have to kill that idolatry. He's saying you must turn from self-centeredness and put Jesus first in your life. You've got to become his servant, his slave. And if you submit to Jesus, you will experience blessings of God the Father forever. God will honor you. After explaining what, it, what is approaching for him and what it means to follow him, Jesus then turns his focus back to what's approaching Verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, I want your name to be glorified. He's praying, not my will, but yours be done. I want to obey you no matter how painful it is, how how dreadful it is. And at that moment, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it. They said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice or sound has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus is teaching that through his crucifixion and resurrection, he is decisively beating Satan. He is showing that he can decisively overthrow the havoc that Satan has wreaked on humanity. Satan wants to destroy people. He wants to destroy God's good creation. And Jesus is saying, this world that's so full of sin and death, I can make it right. He's showing that I'm the king of kings and the God of this world has a short-lived existence. That's what the cross and resurrection indicated. Verse 33, he said, I'm sorry, verse 32, and when I'm lifted up, Jesus said, I'll draw all people to myself. Mark that, all people. Because Jesus is repeating what the Pharisees had just unknowingly said. The world's going to go after him. And what he had just told the Greeks, anyone of any ethnicity who dies to self-centeredness, And becomes my servant who loses his life by submitting to me. Anyone of any ethnicity will be given eternal life. And now he says he's going to draw people of every ethnicity through his sacrificial death. Incredible. He said this about being lifted up to show, verse 33 says, by what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up from the earth. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. His rule will never end. How can you say then that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Or maybe better, what kind of, of, of ruler is this? Their question is a really good one. Jesus has just said, I'm going to die being lifted up. And they're like, what kind of eternal king says he's gonna die? This is the struggle that everyone who walked with Jesus did not understand until after the fact. How God's chosen eternal king for earth was going to die. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is basically saying, you don't need all your questions answered. You know who I am. Follow me. Follow me now. If you wait, it's only going to get harder. And when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And now the chapter is going to end on the real response that people gave, the theme of rejection, that the Jewish people rejected him. This is wrapping up what John had forecasted in chapter 1 in his introduction. He said, he came to his own, and his own received him not. And here at the end of chapter 12, after all that Jesus had done, after all that he had said, John ends on this theme again. The Jewish people, by and large, rejected him. Verse 37, even though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Here's why. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53.1, might be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, right next to that, you might put in Isaiah 53.1. Your Bible might have that nearby. But you might also put in parentheses right next to it, the previous verse, Isaiah 52.15. Because the, the verse right before this, which is part of the theme of this chapter, is that although the Jews aren't going to believe God's incredible servant. There are going to be kings from nations who stand speechless in his presence. The Jews are going to reject him, but many nations will turn to him. Therefore, they could not believe. That's why they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, and here he's quoting Isaiah 6, what Dennis read for us earlier in the service. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This means that there came a point for the Israelites that we might call the point of no return. God said, you've rejected, you've rejected, you've rejected. Enough is enough. They reached the point of no return, and from that point on, God was saying, I am going to harden you. I'm going to send my servant to you, and you're going to ignore him. I am going to allow you to experience justice. You reject, you reject. I am now going to, as your judge, judicially harden your heart. It's Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. And John says in John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Now that requires us to just take a deep breath. That's an incredible statement. John says that Isaiah was prophesying about the servant. That was Jesus. And even more directly than the servant who died for the sheep, that's Isaiah 53, is Isaiah 6. The Lord who's enthroned, angels are surrounding him. Holy, holy, holy. John saying, Isaiah was seeing Jesus. 
Jesus is the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. John has unveiled the glory of Jesus now several times. And you have to put Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 together like this. John 1, 2. The word was with God and the word was God. Or John 12. Jesus was the servant of the Lord and Jesus was the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. That's who Jesus is. And yet, despite Jesus' glory, many people did not follow Jesus. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the, the authorities, believed in him. He means believed in him to a degree. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This does not mean that they were saved. This means that they were lost. If you go back to earlier in the chapter, this means that they loved their lives. They should have said, I need to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. And instead, they said in their hearts, I think Jesus might be the Messiah, but it's not worth following him. Hmm. That is a tragic exchange to love what people think of you more than what God thinks of you. And at that time, this is climactic, verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to the world to judge the world, but to save it. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on that last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Here Jesus acknowledges climactically, I'm the Father's ambassador. I'm his perfectly obedient ambassador. God the Father has commanded me to offer eternal life to all who will submit to me. And the Father will judge all who reject my authority. Wow, what a chapter. We've read John 12. Now I want to comment on the main point. Chapter 12 opens with Mary's exemplary response to who Jesus is. She humbly bows before him, expresses her love for him. She lavishly or extravagantly honors him. That's how the chapter opens. In sharp contrast, chapter 12 concludes with most of the Jews rejecting Jesus Many wanting him dead. Many thinking, it's not worth my place in the community to follow Jesus. Most rejecting him in one way or another. And in the middle of the chapter, at least five times, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, it's stressed that the world is going to follow Jesus. The whole world's going to go after him. 
So the main point of chapter 12 is this. Jesus is the Lord Almighty who should be lavishly worshipped by all. But most Jews refuse to submit to him while non-Jews of every ethnicity would submit to him. Jesus is the Lord Almighty who should be lavishly worshipped by all, but most Jews refuse to submit to him while all sorts of people eventually would. The chapter explains why Jesus was rejected by most. And you say, why did most Israel, why did most of Israel reject Jesus? And the chapter answers with the sober words of Isaiah 6 that God, as a judge, had determined to harden the Jews' hearts and implied in the chapter is and to magnify his saving grace to people of every ethnicity. That's justice before which we must stand in awe. God Our sovereign can do whatever he pleases, and if he wants, if he determines to harden people's hearts, there's nothing they can do about it. Stand in awe. And this is grace to stand in awe of. Christian, God wanted you to be saved, He wanted the gospel to come to Americans. He wanted the gospel to come to Americans of Italian background and German background, Slovenian and Russian background. He wanted the gospel to come to Americans from British backgrounds. He wanted the gospel to come to people like us. He didn't have to. It's grace. It's all undeserved. I want to conclude our study of the first 12 chapters by making a few observations. And I think these observations are perfectly fitting for where we are in the providence of God here at the end of July 2021. This is a month in which we as a church have participated in four funerals. So I want to conclude this way. In these first 12 chapters, John has been laying the foundation about who Jesus is. In one sense, what John has been saying has been extremely repetitive. There have even been a couple times where I have been preparing, saying, I'm kind of saying the same thing that I've said for the last five weeks. John's been saying, consider who Jesus is. He's the son of man. He's God's chosen king to rule forever on earth, to rid creation of sin and death. Commit your life to him, therefore. Believe him. Deepen your commitment to him. Keep recommitting your life to him, no matter how hard it may be to follow him. Consider who Jesus is and commit your life to him. Over and over and over and over for 12 chapters. We have repeatedly heard that message over and over in John 1 through 12. You might get to this point and think, 
Joe, you're supposed to really pastor people. You don't realize that we like have practical daily lives and a lot of problems in our lives. Give me something that really helps me face the day-to-day issues. And that's the sort of thinking I want to address at the conclusion. I want you to see that in many ways nothing is more practical than the repeated teaching of who Jesus is and the repeated application of you need to believe him, you need to submit to him, you need to keep recommitting your life to him. So I have two concluding observations on John 1 to 12. The first is this. The what to believe truth. The what to believe truth of John 1 to 12 is laying the solid foundation for how to live applications of the next chapters. John's focus starting in chapter 13 is going to shift into very practical issues. If I would put a single word over the last half of the gospel according to John, John is saying love. Love people by washing their feet. He's saying live with fearless, peaceable love. Jesus is praying that his disciples will be perfected in love. Jesus is going to shift to focusing on humble, persevering, persecution-enduring, church-serving love. The application's coming, but he has been laying a solid foundation. He actually, John actually structures his biography very much like some of Paul's letters. Think of Ephesians or Romans. First half of the first large portion is teaching, 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 teaching. And then there's a big therefore. And the last bit is application, application, application. John 1 to 12 is teaching. It's truth. And John 13 and following is going to be largely application. Now just think for a minute about the foundation of your home. Is the foundation of your home practical in daily life? You might say, I don't really use the foundation of my home as much as I use my kitchen table, as much as I use my sink, my armchair in the living room, or my mattress. My mattress seems a whole lot more practical than the foundation of my home. But really, in reality, nothing has more significance than the foundation of your home. And you better not take it for granted, right? Some of you will say, amen, because you've had to redo the foundation of your home. The solidity of your house's foundation and the levelness of your house's foundation keeps your floors from splitting, keeps your walls from cracking, keeps your roof from caving in, right? If your kitchen table is wobbly, would you rather be told one of the wooden legs is deteriorating, it's cracking, and it needs replacing? Or would you rather be told Your table's wobbly because your floor is uneven, because your cement slab is cracking, and your slab needs replacing. That's how practical the foundation is. That's why John spends 12 chapters on foundation. See, nothing could be more practical for the various aspects of your daily life Then the question John has been forcing you to ask for 12 chapters. Who's Jesus? Am I one of his followers? 
I say nothing could be more practical. How you work day to day, where you live, how you talk, how you handle money, how you deal with stress, how you use time, how you do relationships. That's like the furniture in your house. Everything needs to be built on the foundation of who Jesus is. Of whether you're one of his followers. John has been forcing you to ask, is Jesus the one by whom and for whom you exist? Is Jesus the creator become human who died and rose again proving that he can beat sin and beat death and remake the planet and rule forever on earth? Is that Jesus? You've got to get the foundation set right. Nothing could be more practical for your day-to-day life than that foundation. Right? Secondly, the truth of who Jesus is, which is the focus of the first 12 chapters, addresses the heaviest reality of human existence. John takes the first half to address that foundation, to lay the foundation well. Who's Jesus? Why should you confess him as your Lord? Why should you commit your life to him? And he teaches over and over and over that Jesus is the creator, become human, and he alone can give life. The creator can give life. The creator can give life. And John has taught that in about every sign and about every word that came off of Jesus' tongue. Think about it. He can turn water into wine. He's the creator. He can spit on the ground, mix mud together, put it on the man's eyes, and fix his eyes. He's the creator. And the recreator. He can raise Lazarus from the dead. He's the creator who can give life to things that are dead. Jesus has been communicating over and over, I'm the creator who gives life. And he's been saying that explicitly with his words. He keeps saying, I'm the water. If you drink from me, you'll have eternal life. He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light that leads to life. I'm the resurrection and the life. What's the common word? <laughs> life. You come to the end of John 1-12 to and you say, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the creator. He's claiming to be the one who creates life, gives life, resurrects to life, and satisfies with life everyone who comes to him. Is that practical? Does that really meet us at our deepest needs? The answer is absolutely. Two years ago, I read this little book by Matthew McCullough called Remember Death, and I've recommended it once about a year and a half ago in a message I was preaching on Abraham and Sarah's deaths. It's one of the most influential books I've read in recent years. I think we have one or two copies out in the front. In chapter 4, McCullough addresses the problem of loss and the, problem of eter- and the promise of eternal life. The problem of loss and the promise of eternal life. And McCullough just very soberly observes, okay, I'm going to quote him for just a little bit, but listen to this, okay, especially if you're a younger person. Listen to this. The younger you are, the more you think that the future promises gain, not loss. 
you tend to view your life as a kind of savings account in which every passing year you're adding new assets. You're watching the number continue to grow. You're expanding your mind through education. You're getting better at your job. You're forming new and meaningful relationships or deepening the relationships you already have. Overall, it feels like you're stockpiling all the things you love about life. And McCullough says, but the truth is that life works like a savings account in reverse. Zoomed out to the span of an entire life cycle, you see that no one is actually stockpiling anything. You're spending down, not saving up. Everything you have, your healthy body, your marketable skills, your sharp mind, your treasured possessions, your loving relationships will one day be everything you've lost. McCullough continues. He says, like a swarm of locusts on a newly sprouted field, Time is devouring everything I love in this world. And this is what death does. Not just to the elderly or to the terminally ill. This is what death does to everyone. Death makes loss normal, universal, and inescapable. And this is the way McCullough concludes chapter 4. But in the Gospel according to John... Jesus does not promise to give us more of what death will only steal away. He wants to give us what death can't touch. Jesus came to bring a world of eternal life. That's what he offers, nothing less. He won't make sense to those who are focused on their own agendas, who are always pursuing what's next. But to those who know that they're dying, who are tired of good things passing away, His words are the only words in life that ring true. He says, until we're honest about the pervasive, painful presence of loss throughout our lives, we won't care about Jesus or his promises of eternal life. Sometimes talk of eternal life seems like a distraction from the challenges and the opportunities and the obligations of life. At best, all these Statements about eternal life, they sound abstract and otherworldly. At worst, it seems escapist, like some way of ignoring life's problems. He says, I hope it's clear that this objection is dangerously short-sighted. If you say that all these talk of eternal life, it's not really practical, it's not really dealing with my daily life, it's, it's talking about things way out there, things that really aren't here. He says, I hope it's clear that this this objection is dangerously short-sighted. If eternal life sounds otherworldly to you, then you're the one not paying close enough attention to this world and its concerns. In this world, everyone loses everything. Eternal life only seems like a distraction from what you really want or need if you pretend you're not dying. Jesus is life. The 
only way to life. Here at the end of July 2021, I trust that you can see that the foundation John has laid in the first 12 chapters is immensely practical. You're really not ready to live until you're staring the hardest reality of life in the face. And when you understand that everyone is inescapably confronted with the reality of death, you will realize that nothing, nothing, nothing could be more practical in life than answering the question, who's Jesus? And am I following him? Let's pray. Father, I pray that everyone here in this room, everyone who's listening, would worship Jesus. Commit their lives to Jesus, who is your chosen king, not only over Israel, but king of kings, who will rule forever on earth. Jesus, we long for your return when you will end death, when you will raise the dead, when we will be reunited with our loved ones who've died. And until that day, Lord Jesus, may your gospel keep advancing. May you be glorified. May your Father be glorified. Amen.